following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Our Bible reading tonight is in First Chronicles again. It's in chapter 3, if you'd find your way there. First Chronicles and chapter number 3 this speaks of the sons of David now. Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, the second Daniel by Abigail the Carmelitess, the third Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephathiah by Abital, the sixth Ithbrim by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty-three years. And these were born to him in Jerusalem, Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathshua, the daughter of Amiel, and there were Ibhar, Elishama, Eliphet, uh, Eliphelet, sorry, Nogah, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphelet, nine in all. These were all the sons of David besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Abijah was his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son. Joram, his son, Ahijah, uh, sorry, Ahaziah, his son, Joash, his son, Amaziah, his son, Azariah, his son, Jotham, his son, Ahaz, his son, Hezekiah, his son, Manasseh, his son, Ammon, his son, and Josiah, his son. The sons of Josiah were Johanan, the firstborn, the second Jehoiakim, the third Zedekiah, and the fourth Shalom. The sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, his son, and Zedekiah, his son. You might pause here and just remember that at that point when uh, Israel was, or Judah, was about to be cast out of the land and uh, taken away to Babylon, there was a sequence of kings that were not, you know, father, son, grandson, grand, you know, great grandson. Uh, they were rather, you know, brother, uncle, that kind of thing. It was just all messed up uh, because of the time of war and captivity and all. Then verse 17, and the sons of Jeconiah were Asir, Shealtiel, his son, and Malchiram, Padiah, Shenazar, Jechamiah, Hoshamah, and Nedabiah. Sons of Padiah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. Sons of Zerubbabel were Meshulam, Hananiah, Shelomith, their sister, and Hashuba, Ohel, Berechiah, Hasadiah, and Jushab Chesed, five in all. The sons of Hananiah were Pelatiah and Jeshiah. The sons of Rephiah, the sons of Arnon, the sons of Obadiah, and the sons of Shechaniah. The son of Shechaniah was Shemaiah. The sons of Shemaiah were Hattush, Egal, Bariah, Neriah, and Shaphat, six in all. The sons of Neariah were uh, Elioni, Hezekiah, and Ezrechem, uh, three in all. The sons of Elioni were Hodaviah, Eliashib, Peliah, Akuv, Johanan, Deliah, and Anani, seven in all. All right, we'll leave the reading there at chapter number three. Uh, you remember, don't you, from, oh, say, the book of Ruth or the book of Matthew, the importance of genealogies. Remember also from the book of Ezra, our brother uh, Jansen has just been sharing with us that uh, there was an import to the genealogies there because some of the priests, well, they supposed they were priests, said, hey, we're supposed to be priests, but they couldn't be proven to be priests because they couldn't prove their genealogy. So that was a bit of a, 
a downer for them, but, you know, because that was their livelihood if they were priests and Levites, right? They got their livelihood and their, the difference uh, with the uh, inheritance laws uh, for the nation of Israel uh, with them meant that they had to get their living from the offerings that were given, so that made a big difference for them in their lives. All right, we are going to turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 7. If you would turn there, we'll spend the next few minutes looking in the Word of God at Matthew chapter 7. And we're still journeying together through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the third chapter of it, of three, so we're getting close here. We're we're actually going to see that uh, toward the end there is uh, really... uh, a reminder that there's one way of salvation and that uh, there are other false uh, prophets, false teachers that want to lead astray, and the Lord uh, calls on people to listen wisely or, if they will not, to be like the man who built his house on the sand and is going to be lost. We go to Matthew chapter 7, however, and in Matthew chapter 7, we have arrived at verse number 7. So if you'd let your eyes go down there to verse number 7. We've seen about judging not, we've seen about uh, uh, specks and beams, and we looked at some length at verse 6 about uh, holy pearls and dogs and swine, and uh, considered uh, what that means uh, in the context. Now we come to verse 7. The Lord Jesus says this, precious verse here, ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This is another well-known part of the sermon, isn't it? One of the first verses that I have a recollection of working on to memorize as a child uh, with the tutelage of my dad's mother, my grandmother, who was a believer in Christ and interested in her grandchildren coming to know the Lord, uh, I only could wish that she uh, could know that I've gotten into the ministry now. Uh, she's gone, been with the Lord since 2004. And uh, I think, uh, if I recall right, hers was the first funeral that I ever participated in as a minister or a up-and-coming minister. So, uh, But that's fine. She, she's in a better place now, and uh, she'll find out later if she needs to about uh, some of the fruit of her labors. But uh, ask, and it will be given to you. And uh, if, there's any, if there's any more encouraging verse to you to pray and to ask God something, I don't know what it is. This is just, just straight up telling you, ask, and it will be given. It's so comforting to know that God cares about what we want and need, mainly about what we need. Uh, and, and he actually invites us to ask about those things. It's kind of like God is so wise. He's designed the human family to be like the spiritual family. Uh, So if you remember uh, and you had parents who were believers or who were just kind parents, do you ever remember them saying, why didn't you just ask, son? Why didn't you just ask? my daughter, because I would have been delighted to help you to do whatever that was or to get that thing or to meet that need. I didn't know you had that need. If you made it known, then we could have done something about it. 
and the preciousness of that interaction between a father and son or a father and daughter where the father, and you know, I just speak from the father's case as I'm a father, is just wants to know what the, the son's estimation of his need is um, and wants to be of help and wants to help him or her avoid maybe going about something the hard way, you know, and guide and, and give help in that. And so our Lord God is like this as well. He delights to have us ask. And so we need to remember that as we pray, that we are not bothering God. I mean, obviously, if you're asking, can I say it this way just plainly? If you're asking something stupid, then, you know, think about that, okay? <laughs> Don't do that. But uh, if you're asking something legitimate, I mean, how, how could God refuse you to be asking for the salvation of one of your dear family or friends? How could, how could God look down upon you if you are asking him for wisdom? I mean, he tells us in James that he, he delights if you ask for wisdom, and he will give wisdom, and he will not upbraid, he will not criticize you for asking that. Uh, and and the, the, the funny thing is, like in a human situation, sometimes the parents already know what the children need, and they're just waiting for them to ask. It's like asking is that gateway, that gating function that allows the father or the mother to come into the situation and be of help without uh, being intrusive. You know what I mean? Like to be welcomed, to be asked, to be invited to help, not to have to say, well, son, you know, actually, if, I, if it were me, this is the way I'd do it. Instead of, hey, dad, what would you do? Well, you know, then, then it's just an open door for you to... To, uh, to, to answer and, and provide some wisdom and guidance. God cares about what we need, and the Lord tells us to ask, and it will be given you. Now, there's another attitude or side of, of an attitude of this that if you are arrogant, if you are proud, you think you don't need to ask anything. You just think you, you're self-sufficient. You are, as one of our brothers said, the, the kind of guy who thinks you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, we laughed about it yesterday because we were, I think, speaking about somebody who was just laid flat, like in the hospital, and they couldn't do anything. They couldn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But then, you know, we're kind of sitting there at the table, you know, we're, we're very healthy and strong, and, and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, except we really can't because... God made us, and God gave us the boots, and God gave us the bootstraps, and God gave us the strength to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing that we have done on our own. We've got to avoid that proud attitude that says, I don't need to ask. I don't need to ask. Humorous, you know, uh, you don't want to ask for directions, right, gentlemen? Uh, Oh, that's, uh, you know, the online map programs are good because you don't have to ask anybody for help. You just type, type it in your, your computer, your phone, and, and uh, get what you want. The irritating thing, though, is when you put those directions in and the, and the little woman's voice in there says, make a U-turn. You're like, I can't make a U-turn here. <laughs> You've got to ask somebody else for assistance then. 
Um, but this is an easy verse to memorize, and I encourage you to work on memorizing it. Young people, please. Uh, this is, is great because it has three parallel phrases that are basically synonymous. Ask, seek, knock. They all mean the same thing. He's not trying to give three different, uh, you know, entirely different teachings here. He's saying ask, seek, and knock. Asking means you need something. Seeking means you lost something or you do not have something that you're looking for or hoping for. Knocking means that there's some doorway that's closed that you are hoping will become open, that you want to access. Uh, I think of this in terms of of ministry, um, church ministry. There are things that I'd like to see accomplished, uh, this church to do, uh, but we have to ask. We have to ask God for them. We can't just muscle through it ourselves and, well, we'll just start a new program for this. You know, it's a funny, a funny thing when a ministry, I'll say it this way, it's not really this way, but when a ministry starts itself because you have a gifted person that God sends along or a person whom God puts the burden into and says, Pastor, I want to do this with the church, and you're like, aha. The door has been opened. We've been asking for the door to be opened. We didn't kick it open. God opened it for us. We've asked. We sought. The things that we're asking, seeking, and knocking for are almost as variable and numerous as you can imagine. I mean, what thing is there that you could not pray for that would not fit into these categories of asking, seeking, or knocking? If your life really lacks something of importance, if you really are missing something you need, if you cannot get through to someone or something, then it may be that you don't have because you don't what ask. James chapter 4 and verse 2. Or maybe you ask amiss to spend it on your own pleasures. It's like sowing seed or seeking the lost to be saved. If you do not sow a lot of seed... You're not going to get a lot of fruit. If you don't work with a lot of lost people, you are not going to find a lot of lost people. Or in this case, ask God for what you need. If you don't ask God for what you need, you can expect very little in return. I think that is a kind of an axiomatic thing, isn't it? If you don't ask, what do you expect? If you don't receive it, well, you didn't ask for it. Why do we give such requests to God? Ask, seek, and knock. For everyone who asks, this is verse 8, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. The reason for making requests like this is that God will respond to your requests. In fact, we already kind of ran over that or read past it in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. What it doesn't say explicitly here when our Lord is preaching, the understanding is it will be given to you by God. Seek, and you will find. God will help you to find. Knock, and it will be open. God will open it to you. Because everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened by God. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift And every perfect gift is from where? Heaven above. 
comes down from the Father of lights. Remember uh, Luke chapter 18? He spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Very powerful parable. Luke 18, the end of that parable says this, verse 7, And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. The context here is somebody who is asking or seeking relief from God. Uh, asking or seeking relief from an unjust judge, and that's an illustration of asking or seeking relief from God, who will, as a very just judge, give a reply to the person asking. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And I think that uh, our friend who preached this uh, text a long time ago, Pastor Don Peterson, brought a very good insight to light on that. You read that and you say, well, will he really find faith on the earth? What Pastor Peterson said, the context dictates that he's talking about, will he really find faithfulness in this matter of prayer when he returns? Will he find a people praying and asking God and seeking and knocking, or is he going to find a, a bunch of people who have given up and have lost heart in opposition to what it says in chapter 18 and verse number 1? Be a person of prayer. Be a person asking seeking and knocking. Now, there are also certain caveats that we have to observe about this teaching because it's not a blanket promise that we can ask for anything on our Christmas wish list and get what we want. Okay? We must understand this teaching considering the, the instruction in the rest of Scripture. Okay? That's always the case. First of all, so we must ask in agreement with the will of God. Okay? And one way that we indicate that we're thinking of that is when we pray and we add to the prayer in the name of Jesus. In other words, what we're saying is whatever we've talked about in our prayer, whatever we've asked, requested, sought, knocked for, we're attaching the name of Jesus to that. And we're saying that this request and prayer is worthy of being associated with Christ. It's not trivial. It's not silly. It's not wrong-headed. It's not asking amiss to f fulfill our own pleasures. It's a prayer that is uh, it's like equal to being put next to the name of Jesus. That's what it means, to be asking in accordance with the will of God. And then it means that we are asking according to his will. A similar, really, two sides of a coin here. You're attaching the name of Jesus to it. You're praying in the name of Christ, not formulaically, but with a real meaning that this prayer fits who Jesus is, and then you're asking in accordance with his will. We know that he hears us if what? We ask anything according to his will, 1 John 5, 14 through 16. Now, we spent some time thinking about that. I don't know, when was it? Within the last few months. What is it to pray in accordance with the will of God? Well, we said that it's not praying knowing the future already. In other words, uh, Lord, heal so-and-so of cancer, but I don't know if he's going to do that. So then you feel like, well, I can't pray that because I don't know the will of God. But that's not the kind of will of God that we're talking about here. You can ask God to heal that person of cancer, and God may say no in the way that you were thinking. You were thinking, 
heal him because the surgery and the chemo and the radiation are going to work, and, uh, or God, you'll just ima- magically erase the cancer and they'll come back and they'll live on for another 65 years. Maybe he answered your prayer in a little different way than you thought. He healed them by taking them to heaven, right? That's far better for them, even though we're so bound to this planet that it's hard for us to think about leaving it and being unloosed from it. Um, but we are, we are asking according to his will in the sense that we ask in accordance with this, the revealed will of God. We're not talking about his secret will. Uh, you know, Is there such a thing? I mean, yes, God has ordained all things. He knows everything that's going to come to pass. But we don't and we can't, and we can't ask him to reveal that to us. So we ask in accordance with the revealed will of God, and we await his answer. And that might mean that we modify our prayers such that we recognize, because the will of God, as specified in Scripture, is that everyone will suffer eternal, uh, uh, well, that will suffer death and will go into eternity, one place or the other. And so we might modify our prayers instead of trying to hang on to, you know, great, great, you know, great grandma so-and-so who's a Christian. We might just say, God, I know your word says it's appointed to men once to die. Great grandma so-and-so has cancer. Pray for her to have peace and grace and mercy and take her, you know, in, in, uh, to the next life just quietly and may it not be hard for her. And that, that's praying in accordance with the will of God. It's not, oh, God, please don't let her die. You know, she, she's 97 years old. Let her live another 30 years. I mean, that's a little unrealistic. <laughs> uh, you know, in what condition would she live for the next 30 years? You know, in bedridden the whole time? I and mean, what kind of existence would that be? And so on. So in accordance with the will of God, we must also ask for that which is pleasing to the Lord, That's what it means to pray in accordance with God's will. We must also ask with the right motivation. We've touched on this already, James 4, 3. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Uh, What would be an example of doing of this? Any, any, Any example of praying, asking amiss? Now listen, brother. Our brother in the back, you couldn't hear online, but he said, praying for a pink Cadillac. I would say praying for any Cadillac could fit under that. <laughs> praying for a pink Cadillac is just wrong, okay? <laughs> this is not a Mary Kay uh, competition over here, okay? Um, yeah, so you could pray for something that would be to consume it on your own lusts. To consume it on your own desires, or you just want to be a show-off driving your pink Cadillac around town. You must ask with the right motivation. The readers and James were, were asking with a mind towards spending what they received on their own pleasures. It was a selfish asking, not a selfless asking. Not a selfless asking. Probably, I don't know for sure, but Maybe you just observe yourself and see how much do you pray for yourself and your own concerns in comparison to how much you pray for the concerns of others, that they receive blessings and benefits and that you are pleased when that happens. 
Uh, I, I've lost track here. We're praying in accordance with the will of God. We're praying to please God. We're praying with the right motivation. So this would be number four. We're asking with a clean heart. We're asking with a clean heart. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3 just briefly. I'll look at this in another verse or two. First John 3 and verse, sorry, 22, if I didn't say that already, 322. Uh, it says in, in that verse, 1 John 3:22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Okay, so not only are we asking for a thing, an, a, a, an answer, a, a request that is pleasing to God, but we're asking God in a clean and pleasing way. If Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Okay? You cannot be, you know, living in sin, and you know what that means for yourself, unconfessed sin, not repenting of your sin, and then asking God for some benefit. It just is in, it's like, why are you asking me that when you know what to do and you're not participating in the doing of it? God uh, said to Israel, you know, you've rebelled and I have become your enemy. You're going to seek me and you're not going to find me because we're, we're, we're in Leviticus 20, uh, 28, is it? 20, I can't remember the chapter now. Or Deuteronomy 28 where you know, if you disobey, it's going to be curses for you. You know, God says, look, we're in that department now. We're not in the blessing department. You've departed. You've gone into idolatry. Don't be, you know, don't be pretending that's not the case. Now, he says, if you turn to me with all your heart and believe and seek my face and repent of your sins and all, then we'll come back to the blessing side of the equation. Asking with a clean heart. Even if you're out of sort with your spouse, your prayers are what? Hindered, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. And then, I think this, what is this, number 6, 5, 6, whatever, we must ask persistently. So in accordance with God's will, ask what's pleasing to God with the right motivation with a clean heart. We must ask also persistently. Luke 18, again, we go back to that, to pray and not to faint. Another one is Luke 11. I'll just turn there if you want to follow me there, Luke 11. The scripture says in verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, for the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, sorry, his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So the friend comes late at night wanting to borrow some food. Verse 9 is parallel to uh, the asking, seeking, knocking verse. Okay, he's going to keep on asking, keep on asking, keep on, uh, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Look at that verse number 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, present tense, receives, and he who seeks, present tense, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be 
opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, much more, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So we're to ask persistently. This is not vain repetition. This is not vain repetition. This is persistent asking for those things that we know meet the criteria of a clean heart, right motivation, according to the will of God, and so on. Okay. We don't know what the outcome might be, but we know that if it turns out as we ask him, it seems that it will please God as best we understand, and that is how we pray in accordance with the will of God. I traverse my Bible back to Matthew chapter 7 now, and we come to verse 9, which we've already kind of uh, jumped ahead of ourselves by reading in Luke 11. Jesus now gives an illustration of the principle to ask and receive And that is, the illustration is this. Evil people often respond well to asking. Evil people often respond well to asking. And so the argument from from that is God is far better than an evil person, and he will give in accordance with his goodness. I'll just read starting in 9 through the first part of 11. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, stop right there. That's the illustration. Suppose your child asks you for food, bread, or fish. Aren't those the two things here? Ask for bread, verse 9. Ask for a fish, verse 10. We're going to assume, because of the nature of the thing asked for, we're going to assume that the son is asking something that is reasonable and right. He's not asking out of a bad motivation. He's simply hungry. He's asking for a completely legitimate thing. He's not asking for a toy. He's not asking for luxury. He's not asking for something to spend on his pleasure. He just is asking for a basic need. This is a right request. He's hungry. The father will not usually give the boy a stone or a snake as a joke or as a a way of punishing him for asking to satisfy his hunger. The stone is useless to satisfy his hunger. The serpent is dangerous and scary. Loving parents do not do that sort of thing to their children. Now, I will say there are some people who are extraordinarily, egregiously wicked and abusive of children. And they deserve to be caned. You know what I mean? Okay. Just put them on a, on a, a ship and send them over to Singapore and let them, let them have at it. Okay. It's too bad that we don't have some of that here because adults who do those sorts of things to children are, well, it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and to be thrown into the depths of the ocean and what's going to happen to them at the judgment. So yes, there are some particularly evil people who abuse children, and this, I am afraid, will become more and more the case as our society descends into lawlessness and wickedness. I call the society we do as Christians to righteousness to repent of that wickedness. 
You hear all kinds of things today, just terrible. I heard just today about a group of people who were rallying for critical race theory, and they were calling for the death of people who disagree with them. In America, in 2021, that is savagery. That attitude is wickedness. But you do have people who are, who are egregiously evil. But normally, that's not the case. The first part of verse 11 expresses Jesus' belief that people are sinners. Look at that again. If you then, being evil, he just simply says it. Who's, to whom is he speaking? Well, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples and to a multitude who are gathered there overhearing his teaching to his disciples. He's really teaching them uh, a mixed audience of disciples and the multitude. And, and we have to face the fact that the sermon, Jesus knew this sermon was intended for a worldwide audience. Do you think about that? He didn't just preach this like I'm preaching this message and I know it's for this audience and a handful of people online and whoever happens upon it on YouTube. Okay, a hundred people or something max, maybe some small number. The Lord knows he's preaching for a crowd before him of perhaps thousands and that this sermon would be re-preached and taught for 2,000 years after this. He's preaching for a worldwide audience. Throughout the rest of history, after the sermon was given, the evident intention of God means that Jesus is expressing a basic truth of all humanity. Humanity is evil. He's not being offensive. He's being truthful. He's being frank. He's setting that over against the goodness of his Father in heaven, saying that by direct comparison to God the Father, we are evil. We may have some good streaks, so to speak, but we are not good, okay? We are not good. We do not subscribe to the popular theology today that all people are basically good. I've illustrated that before with things that have happened in the the world. We are not basically good. Humans are depraved sinners. What does that mean? It does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be at all times. It means that we're all infected by sin, thoroughly infected, that sin dominates our lives before we are saved, that we're dead in sin before salvation, that we are unable to save ourselves, we're unable to lift ourselves out of the miry pit of sin and death. We need rescue. So this is what I say in my doctrinal statement about the extent of sin and individual depravity. I believe that the spiritual death and the consequent moral and spiritual corruption of human nature has been transmitted to the entire human race, the man, Christ Jesus, alone being the exception. And hence that every child of Adam is born into the world with a nature which not only possesses no spark of divine life, but is essentially and unchangeably bad apart from divine grace, destitute of any moral good, and utterly unable to merit God's favor or contribute to his salvation. This is called depravity. It is total. Depravity is total in the sense that it affects every aspect of man's being, his mind, his will, his heart, his body, his mouth, his affections, everything. Man is therefore a slave to sin, is God's enemy, and is under God's wrath and condemnation because of his guilt. 
That's interesting. I wrote this doctrinal statement uh, coming on uh, 17 years ago, and I just found a small typo in it. I'm always looking to hunt for those typos. There's one right there. All men, including true Christians, have a sin nature and do commit sin, though the effects of total depravity, get this. Now, this is the glorious truth. The effects of total depravity are mitigated by the new birth. It is not the case that a Christian can be called totally depraved. We were, but not after the new work of God has begun in you and is ongoing. God is changing you so that you cannot be said to be totally depraved. Those effects are mitigated by the new birth. So the first portion of verse 11 again, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts, expresses that people, as evil as they are, get this, as totally depraved as every human being is, still retain some marks of divine goodness in them from the creation and original constitution as God's image bearers. Humans have a personal, moral, a spiritual likeness to God. Part of what God is, or what is good in God was transmitted to humanity in the creation of Adam and Eve. This goodness was damaged in the fall. However, some of it remains in the hearts of people that causes them to love others, to be sympathetic, to be sacrificial, to be philanthropic, to be caring. It's what explains why people jump to help flood victims or a tornado disaster or a hurricane. We, we jump in and we want to give and help those things. The goodness that is in humanity remaining from the image of God restrains the sin of human beings so that the most depraved forms of sin are not everywhere present. Thank God for that. But, as I said before, this is getting worse and worse. Evil men will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Lawlessness will abound. The hearts of men will grow cold. Family affection will go away. These are perilous times in which we live. We have to get used to that, and we have to, as best we can, uh, Put, a, put up a standard of righteousness against that in our lives and the lives of others that we may encounter. God's character, my friends, is different than ours, infinitely far better than we are. And God's character is good. Psalm 73 says, God is good to Israel. The Lord is good is often repeated in Scripture. We see it in Psalm 34, Psalm 100, the Lord is good. Psalm 135, 145, uh, 33, 11, Lamentations, Nahum 1, 7. I'm just going to go back and look at that Nahum, see if we can find that in our uh, minor prophets here. Right after Micah, Nahum 1, 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. The, the refrain of Scripture is that the Lord is good. You go over these verses, go over this truth in your mind. The Lord is good, the Lord is good, the Lord is good, God is good. The value of going over these is to remind us of the truth and to combat the ever-present notion that God, this is weird, the ever-present notion in wider society that God is bad. God is bad, religion is bad, Christianity is bad, God is evil, 
If you think that, you're in conflict with the Bible and guilty of slandering God. The problem, if you say God is bad, lies not in God. The problem lies completely in your heart. You misunderstand who God is. You demonstrate you do not know God. And your authority in matters of religion, yourself, your own heart and mind, is twisted and wrong. That authority is a poor substitute for the truth and authority of God, and it is leading you astray. Imagine if you are an atheist and you think that God is evil, or the idea of God is evil. So, first of all, if you're an atheist, God doesn't exist, so how can he be evil? Okay, that doesn't make sense. So, let's put that aside, because that's nothing. Second, if all that exists about God is some wayward soul's idea of God, in other words, the atheist says, well, it's not God that's evil, because God doesn't exist. It's the idea of God possessed by people that's evil. You know, these wayward souls, they don't understand, you know, science is the way and all that. Uh, But I would say to that, if you think it's the wayward idea of God, then you need to prove that all such conceptions of God lead people to do evil and that the idea is inherently evil itself. You can't just assert that statement that God is, the idea of God is evil. You have to prove it. The idea is patently false and absurd. Why should somebody believe it, that the idea of a good God is a bad idea? You have to abandon that. Obviously, there are wayward, really wayward souls who claim to be doing God a service by killing people, by carrying out the Inquisition, by burning people at the stake. But these have to be eliminated, these sorts of people have to be eliminated from your consideration about God because it's they who are obviously in the wrong. Anybody who's read the Bible for two seconds, okay, I'm speaking pejoratively here, but if you've read the Bible for two seconds, you know that God in the New Testament tells us that we must love our enemies, not kill them, okay? You know that if you understand the overall structure of the Bible, the church is not the kingdom. The church is not the government. The government's job is to punish evildoers and to praise those who do well. The church's job is to preach the gospel of Christ, to believe it, to have a society of believers who are walking in faith and in obedience to God, and if they're not, to expel those people out from the assembly. That's as far as we can go so that uh, they will be cast out into the realm of Satan out from the umbrella of the protection of the church, and they'll be uh, buffeted by Satan and hopefully saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we can do. If you've read the Bible, you understand that. You don't get all turned around with, well, you know, the Catholic Church did this, or the Protestants in Geneva did that, or whatever. Yeah, they did it wrongly. They didn't follow this book, okay? So third, you have to contend with the fact that it is people who are evil, God is good. God is not evil. People are the ones who are evil. God created humans to be good and commanded humans to be good. So why do you blame God for the evil of humanity? It's not sensible to blame God for people's wrong choices unless you want to make people into moral robots. And I bet no atheist wants to go down that path of divine determinism. Okay? Most Christians don't care to think about divine determinism, whether it's hard or soft determinism. 
we want to be free moral agents or even libertarianly free. If we want to preserve any modicum of moral agency in the human race, we cannot blame God for all evil. Fourth, if you have to deal with the you have to, sorry, you have to deal with the impossibility of the contrary of God's existence if you're an atheist again in this view. Now this kind of goes off the the path here of the text, but I'm just dealing with this issue of atheism and atheists saying God is evil. If God does not exist, you do not exist. Okay? Because there's no realistic way you can really think that beings as complex as us or as complex as a fruit fly can exist apart from the divine creative agency. We don't come into existence by mere chance. You know that randomness is not how things really work. Let's just look at this background back here. How did that come about? By chance? No, you know for sure that some very smart person came up with that drawing and then implemented it in fabric by what? How do they do that? Screen printing at some kind of printing on that fabric or something. It's humanly designed. And yet, you know, look at the horse there or, or any of these things. You, you look at the picture of the horse and you say, it's designed. Then you look at the horse and you say, it came about by a result of random chance. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's just foolishness. Now we get back to this issue of God's giving and answering our prayer. God's giving is in accordance with his goodness. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, who is good, is implied, give good things to those who ask him? God gives us rain and food. This kind of goes back to what we talked about this morning. Interesting how these mesh together today in the messages that he, in common grace, gave us rain and food. Um, and also a, a bevy of texts in addition to Acts 14 and Leviticus 26 in which God promises rain and agricultural prosperity to his people if they are obedient to him. He gave us, God did his word. Uh, Proverbs 2.6 says the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God is good in these ways. He gives understanding of spiritual things. He gives knowledge and joy. He gives every good gift, James 1.17. In fact, uh, back in Ecclesiastes, uh, where I was alluding to, where he gives knowledge and joy, God gives all kinds of things and encourages us to enjoy those good gifts while we have them, whether it's our marriage relationship or uh, good gifts uh, of things that we can use judiciously. He gives the, us those things, and we should enjoy them. He gives us breath and life and family and children and loved ones and friends and everything truly good in life. He gives the increase in church work, and he gives the Holy Spirit to believers. Acts 11 says when they were dealing with the entrance of the Gentiles into the church, they were saying, whoa, God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave us. How can we argue against that? Can't argue against that, but God gives the Holy Spirit. If you do not see this idea that God is good and he gives all these good gifts, you need to repent of your lack of gratitude to God. Not being thankful to God is a serious, serious sin. Romans 121. It's a mark of idolatry, of paganism. 
to not be thankful to God. Somebody who says God is wrong, God is evil, God is bad. No, they should be saying God is good and I thank God for all the good gifts that he's given to me. If you're not saying that latter, you need to repent. You are not pleasing to God. So in the bottom line here, the Christian can confidently ask God for whatever is needful. Not only is the door open, if I may use a phrase from this, for you to ask, not only is the opportunity available, but God commands you to ask. To not ask, then, is what? Disobedience, isn't it? To not ask is to disobey God's command here. When he says, ask, seek, and knock. The believer then can rely upon God's goodness to give what is best in response to our requests. Maybe you don't even know what to ask or how to ask. You can be confident that God is good and he will respond in the best way possible to your request, however you formulate that request. I mean, you can tell him, God, I don't even know how to ask, but I'm asking something, seeking, asking you to open. I'm knocking. And you may ask him for his good will to be done. I trust that you will be encouraged by this passage tonight. Ask, seek, and knock, because God is good, and he will answer your requests. Let's pray. Lord, tonight I ask that you would help us to be askers, seekers, and knockers, that we would humbly come before you and seek those things which are needful for us. Lord, we do not want to be self-sufficient. We do not want to be proud. We want to be humble. We want to be dependent upon you. And so I ask that you would help us instill in us the attitude that corresponds to this teaching of asking, seeking, and knocking. And thank you for your promises and your encouragements in this regard that you are good and that you give good gifts to your children. Uh, Help us to be of this mindset, I pray, in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are at the uh, 7.15 time here, which means we're done for the day with uh, public ministry. We hope that you'll stay for a moment and have some fellowship. But uh, do pray for Vacation Bible School. hope you can be here tomorrow if you're able to volunteer. Uh, We always have room for folks to help and look out for uh, the young people and make sure all is safe and well and all are accounted for and everything. So, yeah, just uh, do be in prayer. I should be here tomorrow morning around uh, 8.30 to open up and have the building ready for everybody to come. So uh, that's our plan. All right, good night, all. God bless you.